I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, and my mom is schizophrenic, and she, you know, we grew up on welfare. My dad just disappeared when I was four, never paid child support, and we, my brother and I grew up on welfare, but because she was schizophrenic, um, it's really hard for her to keep up with, like, all the paperwork and all the different hoops you have to jump through to keep your assistance, which is really unfortunate because I feel like the families and kids that need that the most often have like parents with like mental illness or addiction or different things that even makes it harder to jump through the hoops and it becomes this horrible like cycle. Um, But so we were like constantly like losing our benefits, getting evicted, all these different things. And so we would live in, you know, section eight housing and then we would be like sleeping on friends' couches and then we would be in a shelter. And like I was in, um, my brother and I were in separate foster homes for two years and uh, I just, like, basically didn't have parents. That was Carrot Quinn, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 138. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. This is a special edition episode of the podcast, which I'm releasing for you as a bonus between seasons 16 and 17. As you might know by now, I'm leaving next week, oh my God, so soon, (laughs) to begin my attempt at a four-month solo thru-hike of the 2,650-mile Pacific Crest Trail. I'll be going southbound from Canada to Mexico, and I'm feeling a lot of emotions, mostly excitement and fear, (laughs) lots of fear, Um, but I'll be sharing all of the real talk, real-time updates on Instagram as I hike. I'm nick.antoinette on Instagram. If you want to follow along, it's nic.antoinette. And I'll be doing one post per day for the entire hike, which I'll upload whenever I have cell reception. So yeah, that's what I will be up to for the next four months. And as for the podcast, season 17, which I've already recorded for you, will be released on August 15th. And it's a season that's made up entirely of favorite guests from past seasons. And you're going to love it. It was so much fun to record. After that, the show will be on hiatus until I'm done with my hike. So you can expect season 18 to come out in December. I'm not quite sure when yet, but sometime in December. So that's what's happening behind the scenes. And in a few minutes, I'm going to introduce you to today's wonderful guest, Carrot Quinn. But first, in case you're new to this show, I'd love to just quickly explain what we do here. At the heart of it, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic answers. I can't give you a miraculous 10-day six-step life hack plan for anything. Sorry, not sorry, (laughs) but as a recovering self-help junkie myself, honestly, I'm really over that approach. And my guess is that maybe you are too. Maybe that's even why you're here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics. We talk about work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. It's definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, so fair warning about that, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way even when that's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. 
The show is and will always be free. But if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. Over on Patreon, you'll see our current funding goal. And when we reach that goal, it means that every single person who works on this show will get paid. That includes me and my sound engineer, Adam Day, as well as every single guest who comes onto the show. Because that's my vision, for each of our guests to be paid for the time, energy, honesty, care, and emotional labor that they bring to these conversations. The budget won't be huge to start with and will hopefully continue to grow over time as the community grows. But higher rates will always be paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. Being able to pay all of our guests has been a dream of mine for a long time now, because as you've probably heard me say before, I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, that means that it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio, even if it's definitely not the norm in the podcast industry. So know that when you help to fund this show, you're using your money as a vote for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women, and you're voting to pay those folks for the entertainment and education that they so expertly provide. When you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series, where I share my real life in real time. Oh man, if you think it gets vulnerable and honest on the podcast, just wait until you start getting my emails. Plus you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for real talk live events and retreats. Also 5% of each season's profits are donated to social justice organizations, such as Black Lives Matter, the Venture Out Project, and the National Immigration Law Center. So you can feel good about that aspect of your contribution as well. And you can help vote for where future donations are made to. So when you head over to Patreon, you'll see that there are currently three funding levels, an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette, and at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid-fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now, let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Carrot Quinn. Carrot is a writer, long-distance hiker, and queer feminist who deeply loves nature. She spends much of every year sleeping in the woods or wandering the desert, and she's hiked over 10,000 miles in the last five years. Her book, Through Hiking Will Break Your Heart, tells the story of her first through hike of the Pacific Crest Trail, and she's currently at work on a second book all about her years riding freight trains and her childhood in Alaska. In this episode, Kara and I talk about long-distance hiking, covering everything from post-trail depression to the disordered eating that often occurs on a long trek. She goes into detail about her hike of the Alaskan Brooks Range, which has now begun, as well as the important fundraiser that she's doing as part of this adventure. When she's not hiking, Carrot spends a good portion of the year living in her van, so she offers a realistic look at the highs and lows of van life. She also tells the story of her DIY fecal transplant and how it cured the horrible symptoms that she was experiencing after a poor reaction to antibiotics that she took when she had Giardia. 
Lastly, we dig into an honest conversation about writing, and Carrot shares where she's at with her second book and how, since she's writing memoir, she handles the challenge of thinking of herself as a character while she's writing. If you know me, you know how much I freaking love Carrot, and that her work and mentorship are 100% responsible for getting me into long-distance hiking myself. It was a delight to have Carrot back on the show, and I hope that you love this episode as much as I did, and that you'll donate whatever you can afford to her fundraiser. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. Awesome. We are rolling. Carrot, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. I love being on your show, Nicole. You're so cool. Oh, you're so cool. Can we just have like a, a like couple moments of mutual love fest? <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> no, here's where I want to start. Tell me one of the most fun things that you've done so far this year. Oh my gosh, this year. Okay. Uh, I So I've gone, I've done a lot of car camping in my van this year, which is so fun. I feel like long distance hiking has given me such an appreciation for car camping, especially when you have like a van with a bed and a bunch of blankets and pillows you can sleep in because long distance hiking, it's like you're outside and it's great and you're sleeping outside, but you're like low key, like on the edge of being uncomfortable all the time. And like, if it's windy, you know, it's, it's like really rough being in a tent or if it's in a storm, it's like really stressful. But when you're in the woods in a van, you're like, get to be outside, but you get to have all your comforts. You get to have dogs. You get to have like a cooler full of food. You have all your blankets. And if it's like windy, it doesn't even matter. And I love it. And I don't know. I've been doing that a lot this year. I feel like, like with friends and um, in like different places. And I just like, I don't know. I love it. I love car camping. (laughs) It's funny the things that you wind up getting an appreciation for, right? Like after long distance hiking, I feel like this is going to sound really silly. The thing that it fundamentally changed for me is how much I appreciate not just showering, but the glory of like fluffy full size towels. I just like didn't know. I didn't know like how <laughs> like a t- fucking towels are the best. Yeah, you love a fluffy towel. Oh I God. love reading about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like these things that in the Western world that we have such unfettered access to are small miracles, like in the scope of human history, it's like insane that we can just turn on a tap and everyone have hot running purified water that just gets flushed away. Um, and I think when you live in the Western world and you take those things for granted because it's such an urban culture and we use it all going away from it for a while, I feel like puts it all in just perspective. And I feel like I like, I'm never going to take those things for granted again, you know, because I've like, not had them for a minute. <laughs> oh yeah. Ever, even now that's the showering is the one thing that's really carried over. I think like coming off trail, it's easy to just get comfortable again and get back into, you know, regular life. But it, literally every single time that I get in the shower, I have this moment of profound gratitude. And it's, it's like almost <laughs> like the showering is like my religion at this point. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned, um, car camping in your van for a good portion of every year you live in your van, right? I do. So I've been spending the winters in Tucson. So I'm in Tucson for like uh, five or six months every year. And then um, I've been doing different things in the summer. And while I'm sort of shuffling around between places, like in spring, summer and fall, my van is like where I'm based out of. So I'm not always like sleeping in it. Like last summer, I did some long hikes. And so then I was like out 
just living out of my backpack. But then my van was here to come back to in Portland. And then I was staying in it. And then in the fall, when I was working on this farm, I work at, um, almost every year I live in my van. Um, the last few months that I've been in Portland, I've actually been like subletting different places. So I haven't been staying in my van, which has been really nice, but yeah, I just always have it and it's always there. And I just, it sort of like fills in all the gaps and makes my life of like moving around the country throughout the year, like not at all stressful because I have this little rolling home for better or worse. I mean, it gets terrible gas mileage because it's an econo line. You can get a nicer van that gets better gas mileage, but econo lines are really cheap, which is rad. Um, so it's kind of a luxury in that way because it, you know, it costs so much to drive, but it is nice because I can just, you know, everywhere I go, I have this little house and Mm -hmm. it makes my lifestyle feel really not stressful. Yeah. One of the things that I appreciate is how real you are about what the experience of you know van life is actually like, instead of just making it look super glamorous on Instagram. Like I think a lot of other folks do with the like hashtag van life situation. Um, I'd love for you to share maybe some highs and lows of van living. Like what are your favorite and least favorite parts of it? My favorite is when you're en route somewhere, like say you're driving across the country or whatever, And you go online and you find like you're driving and you're like, oh, where am I going to sleep tonight? You pull off like a gas station and go online. Like there's this uh, website, freecampsites.net. And there are other places, too. And you find a dispersed campsite, which is basically just like a pull off in the middle of nature with like a fire ring that's free. And you're like, oh, I'll try this out. And you're like in the desert, Nevada or something. And you drive down this dirt road that's not super rough because my van can't handle anything really rough. And you find like the most beautiful pullout ever surrounded by Joshua trees with like a sunset all to yourself. And then you go trail running. And that's when it feels like you're like living an Instagram. But then the next night you look and there's nothing. So you're like, Oh, I'll just sleep at a rest area. And then you pull up in the rest area and there's like floodlights that stay on all night and run like 50 rumbling semis and it's hot, but you can't sleep with your windows open because the rumbling of the semis and the traffic will keep you awake. So you shut your windows and you're just sweating in your van under these floodlights, like trying to sleep. And that's also like very real van life. And it's, it's pretty hard to find showers. Um, I know a lot of people get like gym memberships, like at 24 hour fitness, but I haven't done that yet. I think that's a good idea. But, um, uh, truck stops actually have really nice showers. It's like you get your own shower suite and you can like stay in there as long as you want, but it's like $14. And besides that, it's like when you're like actually traveling around, it's like pretty hard to find showers. And so that gets kind of gross. I go through a lot of baby wipes, but that feels very like real. Mm-hmm. And I, and it's funny because, you know, there's the van dwellers who there's actually this Facebook forum of van dwelling that I love. I love it so much. Um, and it's got so many people in it it's super active and it's a mix of the like people from the tech world who made a bunch of money and then quit their jobs to be free and bought like this $80,000 build out sprinter van and are now like making a living now as wedding photographers and they're traveling around and they have like so much money. And then the people who are like, you know, like retired vets living on a fixed income in like a minivan that they built out using trash. And they're all in this forum together and people will start topics like someone will be like, because everyone carries their water in gallon jugs. Even if you have the nicest van ever that has like a tank, it's just a pain in the ass to fill. So everyone ends up just switching to jugs. So everyone has all these jugs in their van. And then someone will post something that's like, I, whenever I clean out my French press, 
it takes like two gallons of water. How do you guys clean out your French press? And then like two, 300 people will respond telling how they, and it's like the equalizer, like the people with the $80,000 vans and like the retired vets in the like minivans, like everyone has their own method of cleaning out a French press without using up all their precious water. And it's like so beautiful. And people post like photos, like here's the French press after two swishes. And then I flick my wrist and then I use a baby wipe. (laughs) And then I put in half a teaspoon more of water and then I flick it a certain way. And here's a picture when it's done. And someone else will be like, this is how I do it. So I don't know. That's really beautiful. There's some equal, like real equalizers among van dwellers. Um, but there's definitely like a side of it. If you are a van dweller with a lot of money there, it does cushion, it does protect, it does like cushion you in some ways and make your life look a lot more glamorous. But at the end of the day, it's like everyone's bathing with baby wipes and like sleeping in rest areas. (laughs) Um, what's the bathroom situation? What's your solution for a bathroom, bathroom in your van? So I love a pee jug. My whole life, I just, I love a pee jug. I think it's, my love for pee jugs started when I was riding freight trains because you have a pee jug on the train, which is like just a soda bottle with the top cut off and you pee in it and you like empty it over the side of the train. And then I would live in these houses. Like I always get up to pee once a night and I would live in these houses where it's like a walk to the bathroom and I wouldn't want to get up and like walk down a flight of stairs, you know, because you wake up all the way and I didn't want to wake up all the way so I started peeing in a pee jug I have like a big mason jar or something I get up at night and pee in it and then like empty it in the morning and so I love a pee jug so in my van I have my favorite kind of pee jug which is a gallon like a gallon like looks like a milk jug but like for water but like that shape you know like mm-hmm. the milk gallon shape of water gallon and you leave the handle but you cut off the top and so you can like actually hold it from behind and like squat over it and it doesn't it's so much capacity that won't overflow even if you pee twice in one night and I keep it in the little like depression next to the side doors where I keep my gallons of water and then everywhere I go if I'm grocery shopping if I just got to a friend's house and I don't want to like have to pee right when I get inside. If I like am sleeping in my van, if I'm driving cross country, whatever, I can just stop and pee in my pee jug. It's great. I love it. And then as for pooping, you know, I just like, when I'm like in route, I use like rest areas and gas stations. (laughs) But I think some people in the fancy vans have like some sort of toilet system, but I think it's kind of a pain. Like, yeah. Um, some people have like toilets that are like RV toilets, but that it's like the water tank situation. You have to hook up to like RV hookups to deal with that. And people don't necessarily want to do that. So I think a lot of people have pee jugs, but then poop at like gas stations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, or if you're camping somewhere on like BLM land, like then it would be the same thing that you would do if you were camping without your van, right? You just like dig yeah. a hole and poop in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Poop in a hole. Oh, so good. <laughs> I remember <laughs> I'm thinking back to the the first time that you were on the show. That was... I think we were recording in maybe it was June, I think it was 2016 because it was right before I left for my first hike, which was my section hike of the Oregon section of the PCT. And I knew yeah. nothing. I was very concerned about digging a Aww. hole and pooping in it. And you were very nice and gave me very good advice. Oh, how is that? How has your poop in a hole experience been so far now it that you've done? has been very hikes. easy other than there were definitely some places in Arizona where the ground was just too hard. Um, and I had a very hard time digging uh, holes that I was proud of. Let's put it that way. 
Yeah, same. I, I mean, not Arizona specifically, but I have definitely dug a lot of cows in my life that I'm not proud of. And every season I'm like, you know, this year it's going to be better. It's going to yeah. be better this year. But, you know, it's just something you strive for over a lifetime and maybe you never achieve like a consistent, perfect cat hole. I don't know. But, you know, it's just something to strive for. Yep. That's uh, on my <laughs> on my goal list for I'm making myself this my sense of lane, but I'm making myself a, a little kind of like joking, not joking, PCT hiking bucket list for myself. <laughs> like, you know, I want to hike a 30 mile day. I want to hike a 35 mile day. I want to go skinny dipping. I want to consistently like dig really good cat holes. So is there <laughs> anything else that I should put on my list? I mean, those sound like great goals. I hope I want you, I want for you to sleep well. I mean, trail. that's okay. Listen, <laughs> I'm not even going to put that on the list because I feel like I can't control that, but it's good. That's going to be very interesting because as you know, obviously I like basically didn't sleep on my other two hikes. My sort of maintenance strategy was sleep like 12 hours in town. And then that would get me through the next four to five days of basically not sleeping, which is not sustainable for four months. So I'm very interested to see if I get more comfortable. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the big question mark of how possible it really is for me to continue to do stuff like this. If I can find a way to sleep outside. Yeah. I'm really curious what's going to happen. Like at some point is your body just going to be like, you know what, fuck it. And then you'll start sleeping on trail. (laughs) I mean, I hope so. The times, cause there have been a couple times where I slept through the night or, you know, at least like six hours, which for me, I'll take it. That's fine on trail. And it was usually the times where I hiked myself into the ground and it was just like the exhaustion won out over the anxiety essentially. Um, so we'll see, but yeah, it's interesting going into what will definitely be, you know, if I'm able to do the whole thing, my longest hike and something, this is a totally selfish question, but Something that I wanted to ask you about is that I've been thinking about a lot is post-hike depression because that didn't really happen for me either of the first two times. I think maybe because the hikes weren't that long uh, or like I wasn't gone for that long and, you know, I had a really clear life that I enjoy to come home to, but I'm thinking about it a lot this time around and I'm curious what you've experienced and learned from essentially what, like five years of making the on-trail, off-trail life transitions. You know, the first long trail I did, which was the PCT in 2013, my post-hike depression was really real. But since then, it hasn't been as bad, but I also haven't had. So I almost feel like for me, how low I feel after the trail correlates to feel to how high I feel on the trail. And the PCT 2013, everything was so new. I think to this day, it still was the most fun I've ever had in my life because it was just, you know, everything was just new and shiny and magic and amazing and sublime. And, you know, just like this incredible experience of newness and growth and adventure for me, um, that it just, the whole time I just felt like I was like so high. And so then afterwards I got really sad for like six months And then after that, I didn't get that high on any trail ever again, but I also didn't get as sad afterwards. So that's what it is for me, at least. And I'm sure there's something like physiologically happening there. And I think I also think a lot about I don't know if this is a real deal, but in my head, I imagine like. So so when you're hiking all day, you're just uh, exercising all day, hiking for like 10 hours a day, you're just flooding your body with endorphins. And, you know, you're doing it every day to where that becomes like your lifestyle for five months. And I like to imagine like that we have like endorphin receptors. And after a while, I wonder if we start to like lose receptors, you know, 
<laughs> because you just can't you just can't be high like all the time, you know, you're just flooding your body with endorphins. So I wonder if after a while our bodies adjust and we like either lose a bunch of endorphin receptors or something happens and then we finish hiking and you're maybe exercising a couple hours a day at most, you know, and not only are you not getting as many endorphins, but the ones you are getting aren't making you feel the way they used to before you even started hiking because you're, you're sort of like numb to them. Yeah. It's like drug or alcohol tolerance. Yeah. 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 Because I feel like when I first, like when I first started the PCT, when I first started a long hike, like a five month hike, I feel really high. And by the end, I just feel normal when I hike, like it no longer gets you high. It just makes you feel normal. (laughs) And then if you don't hike, you feel awful. And so So after the PCT the second time and the CDT, I didn't get as depressed, but I definitely felt like really bad for a few months, but then it would even out. It would like, after a few months, it's like I would run and I would start to get high from running again. And I would start to feel like more like even keel. So I don't know. It's really interesting, but, um, definitely after the first time I didn't have as much of an issue with it. That's interesting. Yeah. I feel like because my two like long hikes again, like, I mean, they're long compared to a day hike, but they're not long compared to, you know, four or five months, which I'm about to try to do that. I'm very interested to see what happens as time goes on because I felt, I mean, you know, my first hike, I was fucking miserable the whole time. Like I literally cried every single day. I was in so much pain. Like it was, I mean, it was terrible. And I was like, when I finished, I said, you know, burn it all down. I'm never going to do this again. And then obviously (laughs) I did. And last (laughs) year in Arizona, it was miserable for different reasons, and yet I got a lot of what I wanted out of it, um, which, I mean, obviously I've talked about on the show before. But the thing that really changed, I noticed towards the end, like once I got past mm, the like 650, 700 mile mark, I was so strong that it actually started to become enjoyable. And so I'm, and, but then I was done basically, like not too long mm-hmm. after that. So I'm really interested to see, like, what does it feel like between miles, you know, 700 to 1500, like when you're not in pain all the time and you're really strong and you know what you're doing like that. I I feel like the stage is set for me to have a much better time this year. Yeah. I hope you do. I hope it's so great. I mean, my experience just hiking Washington last year, I started so weak. And by the time I finished Washington, because Washington is hard, I was like, I'm strong. And that's only like, I don't know what mile 500 or whatever. So I bet you'll get strong really fast. And then, yeah. And then maybe you'll have a great time. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, something else that I, I know that you and I have talked about this a little bit privately, but that I haven't talked about publicly, and I don't know if you have either, but something I've been thinking about going into going into this hike is sort of the, the experience of uh, body image on a through hike that last year in Arizona, I mean, I didn't do a great job of feeding myself. That's just as I, as I've been working on the first draft of my book, I'm like, Oh, well you didn't eat dinner a lot of nights. So no wonder you were starving and felt like shit. But, um, this experience of like how quickly your body changes, or maybe even becomes like slightly unrecognizable, the way your metabolism changes, sort of the loss of normal hunger and fullness singles uh, signals, and then like binging in town. And I don't know, there was just like something in that experience that I didn't really expect. And I would love to hear a little bit about what your experience has been like of that. Yeah, it's like, it's a little bit of a mindfuck. I feel like, um, yeah, female socialization, you know, teaches us that you know, our body should look a certain way. And then we all beat ourselves up, you know, um, best case scenario, like 
I feel like I'm finally getting to a point now at 35 where I like don't hate my body with the strength of a thousand suns, which (laughs) I think was my experience, whether I wanted to admit it to myself or not. I think that was my experience for like most of my life. And it like informed a lot of things in my life. And then, and it didn't have anything to do with, you know, how I actually looked. Um, It was just like internalized, you know, so many things, so many messages I'd internalized and all these things. And then I started long distance hiking. And on one hand, it made me feel great about my body in, in a way that I think is really genuinely great is where I felt for the first time I felt really strong and really in my body because I just never done something really physically challenging before and that made me feel really great and I was so in my body but I also would lose a lot of weight and even if I didn't want to admit it that would make me feel good in another way because we're taught you know uh that like the thinner you are the better it is like period and no matter how we've tried to like unlearn that or like surround ourselves with other messages and people who don't believe that and different things. It's like you start losing weight. Like I start losing weight and there's some part of me that's like, this is success. Um, and it, it has been getting better the past few years, but it's like taking me a really long time to get to this point. And so on trail, you know, you're burning. And then you're also in this world where you're losing weight and you can eat as much as you want and you're eating all this junk food. It's kind of sucks because it's like you can eat as much as you should eat as much as you want. You should eat a lot, but you don't actually have access to the food you really want to eat. Like I would love to have access to be eating like this insane amount to be able to consume this insane amount and like have it be like, you know, Thai food and Indian food and home cooked meals and really good baked goods. But instead it's like you can have as many potato chips as you want you can have you know without like feeling sick or without feeling like your like nutrition is not good like it doesn't matter like you just need massive amounts of calories and so you just eat massive amounts of junk food and it doesn't hurt your health at all um and i i mean i eat a lot of junk food in real life too and it's fine i feel great about it i eat a lot of chips i love chips i eat all sorts of things um but yeah, it's, it's kind of a mindfuck because on trail, it's like on one end, I'm like, I know that I'm getting stronger and that feels really good and that feels really healthy. But also some part of me was like, I'm getting thinner and that also on some level felt like success. And then you finish the trail and like, first of all, like I don't want how good I feel about my body. For some reason, talking about this makes me feel really vulnerable. I don't feel like I've ever actually talked about this publicly, just privately, but I don't want how I feel about myself to be connected to the way I look, period. I don't mm-hmm. want that for my friends. I don't want that for anyone. I don't want that. I don't want that to be a thing. I want us all to love ourselves, you know, and like accept ourselves and be kind to ourselves. But on trail, it's like, you know, you just lose a bunch of weight and then you're like, fuck. And then you finish and you know, it all comes back in two weeks and then you're like, okay. And it's just this crazy yo-yo that it's like whatever place I'd gone to before I started long distance hiking with like acceptance of my body, then experiencing that yo-yo took it all away because I was like, fuck, you know, like, Mm -hmm. And I wish it could be just like, oh, you know, I just want to feel strong and that makes me feel good. But no matter what, like weight loss and weight gain, especially when it's like sort of a yo-yo, like affects the way I see myself. And it's all just like, it's like so confusing. And 
I don't know. I actually, since then, okay, so PCT 2013, my first long trail, I um, lost a lot. I, I lost too much weight. Um, like, and by that, I mean, I, I like got to a point where I'm pretty sure I was like, um, like really nutritionally deficient and like not healthy because partly because of the amount of weight I lost. And it was because I wasn't good at, um, carrying the right amount of food because it took me a long time to figure out how much food to carry. And I would either carry too much or too little. So there were a few sections where I was like legit starving. And so I felt really sick after that. Like I felt just like pretty bad, like but maybe my post trail depression after that trail was partly that too. I was just really nutritionally depleted since then other hikes I've done, I have carried more food and I have not lost as much weight and that has felt better. And ideally I would like to get to a point where I don't actually lose noticeable weight on the trail at all, because I think that would give me like the strongest consistent sense of self and wouldn't like fuck with me as much. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's my that's my goal for this year too. Is like, how much food can I possibly carry? Because everything that you just explained, and you know, which I really appreciate the honesty and vulnerability of, of that, was definitely what I experienced too. And it was in such a short time frame. It was only six weeks last year, and I think it was really disorienting for me because you go so many days without looking in a mirror, which I didn't realize was something that I do multiple times a day every day, just by the virtue of walking into most you know urban bathrooms, right? Mm. And so then it's like, you don't look in the mirror and I feel like every, you know, five days, something was like really different about my body, whether it was getting stronger, whether it was losing weight, whether it was this changing, whether it was, you know, I went down, I think one, maybe two bra sizes. Like I lost my boobs basically. It was like so quick in just like this short Mm. amount of time. And I didn't feel great about it. And I feel like I started to have, um, like it wasn't, I hate to say this, like it's technically disordered eating, whether you mentally feel that way or not in the you're starving on trail and then binging when you're in town. Right. And so like, I think that messed with me. I think it messed with my metabolism. It took me a long time when I got back home to sort of like reteach myself, like, what does it feel like to be full and hungry? And I was like, man, if I had this experience off of just six weeks, like I need to do Mm -hmm. something different this year so that I don't like completely mess up my body. And so it's been interesting for me to be like playing this fun game of like, how much am I going to be able to eat on trail? Like, I don't care if it's heavy, I'm going to bring it anyway. Like what's, you know, the most nutrient dense, calorie dense things, you know, that aren't just eating Mm -hmm. complete trash. And I mean, I guess TBD, we'll see how it goes. But I just wanted to talk about that because I feel like that's one of the things that isn't talked about is the fact that doing something like this, it can make you feel really physically strong. And also it can mess with you, especially as a woman, like you said. Yeah. And I feel like I don't know if I just like articulated it very well because I, yeah, I just hadn't, I don't feel like I've really even talked about this aloud that much. And yeah, there's probably a better way to articulate it. But I think you just hit the nail on the head that it is disordered eating the way people eat on trail. And even, I mean, even, even dudes do that because the less food you carry when you're hiking, the lighter your pack will be. And everyone wants their pack to be lighter because they're in less pain that way. And so people low key starve themselves while they're hiking. And then when they get to town, they binge like that is the practice. Like they say, there's even some like joke about it, that it's like, the more you eat in like if you're at a restaurant, it's like the more you carry in your stomach, the less you carry on your back, the less you have to carry on your back is like the joke. I, I'm not getting it right. But it's like people joke about like eating like these massive piles of food at restaurants. It's like, well, now I don't have to carry it on my back. And 
it, it really mimics disordered eating. And like, I had an eating disorder when I was a teenager and it, it definitely like brought everything rushing back, like all of those feelings. And, um, yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, it's not something people talk about since then I have, I've made a conscious effort to carry, I carry about 3,500 calories a day on trail. And once my hiker hunger kicks in at day 10, that's about how much I eat. And that is the sweet, the sweet spot for me where I'm not starving myself, but I'm not like I I'm full, I'm full and well-fed, but I'm not carrying so much that I roll into town with two pounds of extra food because I don't want my pant. I don't want my pack to be two pounds heavier than it needs to be. Um, and then my, the other thing I do is I try not to binge as much in town because, because I'm trying to have like less disordered eating on trail, basically. Like mm-hmm. I'm trying to be fuller while I'm hiking and full while I'm in town too, but not like binge to the point where I get so sick that I feel like I'm going to throw up. Um. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's, and that, that, that's what I would do because, and a lot of it was food scarcity too. Even when I was in town and I would get to the point where I was not hungry anymore, like I actually was full, I would keep eating because I would be like, well, tomorrow there's going to be all this food's going to be gone. Like it really, yeah. and I don't have an eating disordered past and it's still like this. And I was like, man, if this is coming up for me, right. It was like tipping me into that space. And so I had to do kind of like a debrief. I basically just did this like three weeks ago. I sat down and was like, okay, what were the actual culprits? like of this food situation. And a lot of it for me had to do with because I hiked in the fall and because I am still terrified of night hiking alone, I did it once, um, that I had really limited time. Basically, it was like 12 hours of daylight, maybe 11 or 12 hours of daylight each day to get you know as far as I needed to get. And I'm not that fast of a hiker and the water sources were really spread out. And so I wasn't making time to like prepare my like most calorie dense meals. And I would find myself at, you know, 4.45 or 5 p.m. on some like ridge line where there was nowhere to camp, like trying to hike myself into the ground before it got dark and then not eat dinner and then wind up like perpetually in this like massive calorie deficit. So I'm like, okay, let's do a little bit better planning this year. And my food strategy is to make it as easy as possible. Like I'm bringing so many bars, like so many more bars than I ever even thought that like I'm like half my calories every day is going to be bars because at least they're just easy. So we'll see. But um, yeah, well, so, okay. So speaking of this year's hiking, by the time this episode airs, you will be out on your next hike. Will you talk about where you're headed? Yeah. Oh, I just want to say one more thing about the um, disordered eating of long distance hiking. Sure. Yeah, of course. Um, I feel like I really want to be like a good sort of role model for other people getting into long distance hiking who find like my blog and different things. And it just, it makes me feel so terrible to be someone who's thin, who like, falls into these patterns because I feel like I have so many friends who are fat who do like body positive activism and are just so fucking awesome and so brave and like take so many risks. And when they take risks, they get so much more pushback than I do because I'm a thin person. And yet I still fall into these patterns where I'm like playing into this, all this bullshit. Anyway, it's something I think about a lot and I like, yeah, I really want to do better. So yeah, it's on my mind a lot, but yeah, the Brooks range. I'm walking across Alaska, with my friend Bunny who I met in Tucson last winter. And um, the first 700 miles will be walking and the last 300 to 400 ish will be floating the Noatak River in inflatable kayaks. And there'll be no reception the whole way. It's all cross country. There's not a single, we won't be on a single trail or road the entire time. We will cross one road about halfway through. And when we get to that road, we're going to hitchhike into town and take a week off. And so I won't have any reception the whole hike for two months and I will be in some of the most intact wilderness left on earth, which is amazing. Um, but when we take that week off, 
I'm going to go to town. I'm going to start posting blog posts because I'm going to write a blog every day on trail <laughs> and which maybe I'm going to be kicking myself for, but probably not. Um, and then once we take a break in the middle, I can start putting posts up, but until then it'll be like radio silence, which is going to be really new for me. Um, yeah, going, we'll, we'll go the first section, the first half will take like 27 days and you know, I won't have a shower the whole time, which is wild. <laughs> Speaking of showers and fluffy towels. Um, Although there is a lot of water, we'll just be following these drainages. So we'll be walking next to or in creeks pretty much all day, every day. So there's tons of water. So we can we can bathe as much as we want. You know, I bring a little thing of soap and I can like carry water. I can just jump in the water without soap. We, whenever There's no one out there. We can just strip off our clothes and jump in the water whenever we want, which is going to be amazing. And then I'm going to bring a little soap, thing of soap and I can like carry water like away from the stream, away from the water source and go bathe um, whenever I want to. So it'll be okay. It's not like the desert. 27 days without a shower in the desert would be pretty intense. <laughs> pretty intense. That would be something else. Yeah. So how did the idea come about to do this hike? Like why this hike for you? Well, I always wanted to do something in Alaska that was long distance and Alaska has very few established trails and most of the state you would not want to walk cross country in during the summer. Like in the winter, people do all sorts of things on the snow. Um, but in the summer, much of the state is like this very boggy forest called Tiaga. I think that's how you pronounce it or boreal forest. And it's boggy because, you know, a certain number of feet down the ground is frozen because of the permafrost. So it doesn't drain very well. And so it's just this like wet bog with these like black spruce and white spruce that are just like these spindly little trees and millions and millions of lakes and like insanely thick mosquitoes and walking through that would just be like hell. But if you go to the Arctic, you actually go north of tree line. So the trees end like in the lower 48, you know, you go up, like you climb up a mountain and you'll get past tree line. You, you go like a certain number of thousands of feet up and then you go above mm-hmm. all the trees and then you're just like in a beautiful alpine meadow. That also happens if you go north. Tree line gets lower and lower and lower as you go north. So like Anchorage, where I grew up in South Central Alaska, tree line is like a certain elevation. I don't know off the top of my head, but like the mountains are mostly like just these beautiful green, lush like meadowy things and tree lines pretty low. And then if you go north to the Arctic, it gets so low that the trees um, at one point dis- disappear entirely. And in the Brooks range, which is north of the Arctic circle, um, there are some trees, but it's mostly treeless. So it's mostly just rolling tundra, these green mountains with like just the biggest Alpine meadow you've ever seen. Uh, with so many tiny little flowers everywhere. And so that makes it a place where you can actually walk in the summertime, (laughs) Uh, which is really cool. The only issue is in the Arctic, there are all these rivers that are too big to cross on foot. But the Continental Divide does this crazy thing. It goes north through the lower 48, and then it hangs a left. After going up through Canada, it hangs a left and goes across the top of Alaska, which is wild. So the Brooks Range goes, you know, east-west across the top of Alaska and the Continental Divide is actually the spine of the Brooks Range and so since it's the Continental Divide it's where all of these rivers start so if you're walking across Alaska and you stay close to the Continental Divide then the rivers will be the smallest they'll be like tiny baby rivers 
just like little creeks just starting coming out of the ground on these passes. Like you'll see, you'll be on a pass and you'll see a tiny trickle of water coming out of the moss and then you'll follow it downstream for a few days and it'll turn into a creek and then it'll turn into a bigger creek and it'll turn into a raging river. And so my route and other people who've done this traverse too, two of them, um, Andrew Skirka and Bruce Buck Nelson gave me a lot of tips and helped me when I was planning this route. Um, the other people who do this route too, you stay like as close to the continental divide as you can so that the rivers are smallest. That being said, Buck did have to build a raft at one of his river crossings, and there's a chance that we'll have to do the same. (laughs) And that's actually the most dangerous part of this traverse is the river crossings. But I have experience crossing sketchy rivers. Bunny has even more experience because she was a whitewater kayak guide. And she's also 6'3", so I kind of just low-key want to be like, how would I just ride on your shoulders? (laughs) 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 And she could just walk across but uh, I don't know. We'll see. Um, but we both have a lot of tools in our toolbox. Like we're both willing to, you know, walk upstream or downstream for miles to find, like you can walk downstream until you get to a point where the river has lots of braids and then you can cross there or you can walk upstream and it'll slowly get smaller and smaller and until you find a spot to cross. And there's all sorts of things you can do. So. Yeah. So you mentioned the not showering for 27 days. You mentioned having no cell reception at all. What are other differences between this hike and previous hikes that you've done? That's the biggest difference. So so before this hike, the longest I've gone without town or reception is probably nine days. And that's what makes this hike really different is, um, will only have reception in town once right in the middle on the two month hike. And so, and the other thing that makes this hike different is that I made the route myself, which was wild. So I've, I've hiked all these different trails that it was like someone's idea and their imagination. And then they made up a route that was like a lot of cross country. And then they put the map online and you can download the map and then you can go hike it. And so I've done that. And I've looked at these maps a lot and uh, I know the people who make them and I've thought about it a lot. And one notable thing is in the long distance hiking community, not very many women make routes. And for some reason, whenever something is like that, some part of me will find it more intimidating. Whereas if a woman does it, that makes me feel like I can do it too. And so I basically made this route because I was forced to, because you don't share routes in the Arctic because too many people walking one path on the tundra can damage it for a long time. And people also don't share routes as a way to preserve the wilderness nature and like the, the experience of hiking there because in the Arctic, there are so many mountains and lakes and things that have never even been named. And there's just nothing like that. There's few things like that left on the planet. And so not having a preset route to walk is also part of the adventure. Like it's an intact experience of a, having to make your own route, having to look at the topography and decide what goes or what doesn't go or where you might be able to cross a pass or what rivers might be small enough and B going through an area where there's like very little collective knowledge on that is shared very widely. And so it feels, even though there is a lot of knowledge that's held, especially about like the Gwich'in people in different Alaska native groups that have been there for, you know, tens of thousands of years, obviously this knowledge has been held for a really long time, but it's not something that's just like on the internet, you know? And Mm -hmm. so it's a really unique experience in that way where you get to go and sort of, um, 
be in this land where there's like collective knowledge that is held by people, but it's very land based and it's very like IRL and analog and it's not on the internet. And I don't know, that's really special. And I guess maybe talking about it, like it's a place with a bunch of unnamed ridges and lakes, maybe that actually does like erase a lot of native history. (laughs) So maybe that's silly. And, um, that's maybe that's not actually the best way to talk about it. And I feel like I'm actually going to learn a lot on this trip. And I feel like I'm going to have a lot more language after I've like developed this intimacy with the Arctic on this trip and like talk to a lot of people. Um, I think I'll have a better understanding of like the human history and like so many different things, but Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I had to make the route myself and I was really intimidated Um, but then once I started doing it, I just, I just wrote a blog post about how to make a route the way I did. So people can check that out at caraquin.com if you want to read about it. But I just use caltopo.com, which is actually incredibly user-friendly, you know, making a route now, I, I think it's probably really different than making a route even like a decade ago. And, um, I just, I'd used enough topo maps, like I navigated with topo maps enough where I'd like, you know, have the map in front of me and then the landscape, the feature in front of me, and I've looked from one to the other, to one to the other until it made sense, you know, like I'd mm-hmm. done that enough that I got into a point where I could look at a topo map and be like, okay, like this is a pass. This is too steep. This is maybe not too steep, you know, like this is like, you know, whatever. And So I was able, and then I knew I had a few tips before I started making the route, like that, like Buck had given me some advice, like stay as close to the continental divide as possible. He was like, here's where I started. Here's where I ended. Stay as close to the continental divide as possible. This and that. And then I just started like looking at Caltopo. I made the background layers so that you could see like not only topple lines, which are really helpful, but also some shaded relief. And like, I feel like the two together, if I just have shaded relief, like I feel like at Google Earth or something where it's just like the satellite image, I feel like that doesn't work super great because the topo lines really show you how steep something is sometimes in a way that's really helpful. And so I had, I had this background that it talks about in my blog post too, the background I recommend that like the layers for Caltopo that really showed both. And I just like went like pass by pass and I was like, okay, like this is where we start we can walk up this drainage. Don't get too far from the continental divide or the river gets too big. Okay. We have to cross the continental divide here, which pass goes, okay, that's too steep. That's too steep. That's too steep. That looks good. And then I, you know, took my line and I put it over that pass. And then I was like, okay, now I'm in another drainage at like the headwaters of another tiny river that's getting bigger. Okay. Don't get too far from the continental divide. Okay. have to cross the divide again. That's too steep. That's too steep. That looks like it goes. And I made the whole route that way. Um, And then Buck had told me where he'd gotten his resupply drops, which are going to be done by Bush Plane. And so then I called the Bush Plane companies and they were like, yeah, these are the different spots we drop. And so then they're like that we can work into our routes because if you have a resupply drop that's off route, off of their usual routes, then you have to rent the whole plane, these little Cessna planes, which costs like $1,800. Yeah, but, and we actually have one of those drops. One of our drops is $1,800, but, which is insane. It's insane. But I'm like, that's the real reason no one does this traverse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions was about how you're going to resupply. So you basically, what, you're packing up stuff and giving it to this company and then they're going to 
drop it for yeah, you? Yeah, it's crazy. It's very Farley Moet. I don't know if you've ever read any Farley Moet, but he's this like Canadian biologist who I think did his thing a lot in like the 40s and 50s and 60s, I think. But um, he's a writer I used to like to read a lot of, but he would just get like, he'd be like, oh, I so, so he wrote this book called Never Cry Wolf. And at the time, this is a debate that still happens. People were like, oh, wolves are killing all the game animals. We have to kill all the wolves because they're killing all the animals we want to hunt. And he's like, I don't think wolves are eating the game animals. So he's like, and this was like in the 40s. Don't quote me on that. Maybe it was the 50s or the 60s. I don't know. I think it was the 40s. But so he went to, to the Canadian Arctic and he hung out at a bar until he found a pilot who was drunk enough to agree to drop him into the in like the Canadian the wilderness of the Canadian Arctic this was the middle winter so then he packed up like a wooden crate of whiskey and like a barrel of salt pork you know your normal supplies for the 40s for your like wilderness expedition or whatever (laughs) and then this pilot just circled on this like blank white landscape him and this guy in this little plane until they were like I think that looks like a cabin and then they just dropped him there And then he stayed there for, I think, a year, and he found out that the wolves were eating mice. And they actually made a movie out of it that's, like, pretty funny that I remember seeing when I was a kid. And at one point, he decides to eat mice to see how viable it is. Anyway, it's funny. People in Alaska still, like, argue about this. And you can, like, because of it, you can, like, hunt wolves from the air and all these different things because they think they're killing all the moose, which is not true. But anyway, that's what it feels like. It's like calling these pilots and they're like, yeah, I'll drop you, you know, whatever. And um, I'm sure they know what they're doing. But um, but yeah, basically, they're going to drop these steel cans with our resupplies in the eastern brook. So that the first section, which is going to be from the Alaska-Yukon border to the Hall Road, the Dalton Highway, which is the one road we cross. It's going to be 27 to 30 days. We have two drops there. So the first stretch is seven days, and then we have two 10-day food carries. And so they gave us GPS coordinates, which I put on the route. So they're on our maps, and they're on our Gaia maps as well. And then um, they drop our resupplies there, and then we get to these coordinates, and we have to find them. And hopefully they put them in the right place. Um <laughs> And then we can put our trash in the cans. And then so they're on these routes that they fly. So these these drops are less expensive because they're on routes that they're flying already dropping because all summer they're just dropping people off because there are no roads in the Arctic at all. And except for the, the Hall Road. And so all these different people do trips. And so these bush pilots are just flying people out all the time. Although it's likely we won't see anybody. And um, so they drop our resupply, you know, on their way out and then pick it up on another trip. And so we'll get to these barrels. We can like take our food out, sit, have a little feast. Cause I'm going to put stuff in there. That's like a special treat just for the cash. Like maybe like some applesauce or canned goods. I don't know. And then um, we can put all our trash in there and then they'll come by and pick it up. That's going to be such a different experience from all the other resupplying you've done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I can't yeah. wait to see how this goes. Um, so when you think about this hike, what's one specific thing that you feel excited about and then one specific fear that you have? I feel really excited about the actual walking part because even though making the route is something completely new to me and going like a month without contact with the outside world is something completely new to me, the actual walking, I spent a week in the Brooks Range in 2016. I made a route and just went out for a week. 
And the actual walking is more chill than some other routes that I've done. So aside from the other things that are new, I think the walking itself will actually be really chill. <laughs> There's a few, you know, we'll have to cross the continental divide several times and that'll be like talus and scree and like, you know, finding the way across. But the Kings Canyon high route I did last fall was like nothing but that, <laughs> like nothing but talus and scree and like going over these crazy passes in the Sierra. And so the Brooks range will actually be just like walking in these lush drainages. Like maybe there'll be some tussocks, which are these like lumpy things that you have to walk on and the ground will be squishy and our feet will be wet. We'll be walking in streams, but overall it'll be like pretty chill. So I'm really looking forward to that. And like, it'll be sunny and warm and there'll be lots of animals and that I'm really looking forward to. And then what was the other thing? One thing I'm scared of. Yeah. Do you have, is there a fear that you feel like is keeps coming up for you? Yes. I, even though that I know that grizzlies like, statistically and logically are not really a danger, even though there are lots of grizzlies and we'll see a lot of grizzlies. Um, it's really open. And so it's really easy to avoid them. You can see them from a long way away and it's less likely that you'll surprise them, which is when they get aggressive. Um, so even though that's like, and there have been very few grizzly attacks in the Brooks range, even though that's not like a real danger, like stream crossings are the real danger and like, you know, maybe some of these passes will be kind of sketchy. I am afraid that I will be so scared of bears all the time <laughs> that it'll like kind of affect my experience. But I think it'll be like you and sleeping. Like at some point, I'm just going to be so tired of being scared of bears that I'll probably just stop being scared of bears. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I hope so. I hope that for you. Um, I just, I want to circle back and underscore something that came up for me when you were talking about the experience of creating the route for the first, like creating like a new route. I think there's something about what you're describing that to me is this idea of like, you learn how to do the thing by doing the thing, which sounds silly, but I look at like a lot of, especially for me, because I was so new and I'm still really new to long distance hiking and the outdoors. And this is not how I grew up. Like so many of the fears and concerns and stuff that I have, and not just in this realm, like anytime I want to do anything new, it's like really easy to have a block about, you know, this is too complicated. This is for other people. This isn't for me for like all the stories that we tell ourselves about it. And it's like, we can learn new skills. <laughs> Even as I say that, that sounds really silly. Like, of course you can learn new skills, but I think sometimes I need that as a reminder that, okay, well you had never created a full on route before until you had, right. You just like, you ask people for advice who have done it. You learn how to do it. You figure out what you don't know. You learn how to do the thing by doing the thing. And then after you walk the route that you created, you will have learned more things for then the next route that you create. Like there's just something that's really comforting about what you said that I am taking with me. Yeah. I mean, one thing that was really kind of made me LOL at myself is realizing that I, one of the reasons I had been so intimidated by it is that I didn't know any women who were doing it. And I realized how like silly that was. And that one thing I really wanted is I was like, maybe by making this route, like other women will see that I've done that and they'll feel empowered to make routes um, because it is a really silly, it's just, it's just like, I mean, there's so many routes in the long distance hiking community that are so awesome and it may, are made by really awesome people, but it's like, it's all men. And it's just something that I feel like could really easily change. And it's, it almost just feels like, you know, we, it, some part of us, we tell ourselves what we're capable of and we don't even like realize that we're doing it. 
And some part of me was just like, oh yeah, route making is not for me secretly. Some part of me was like, said that. And I didn't even know that part of me was saying that. And then once I did it, I was like, this is like not hard. Like, especially with the technology that's available today, it's like really not hard. And, um, yeah, yeah. It was really interesting. I was like, what else am I like telling myself I can't do, which actually isn't that hard and that I could totally do. (laughs) Yeah. Once you get over that first hurdle of the story that you've been telling yourself or whatever it is that you've subconsciously internalized. I mean that, to be honest, that's why your book was so powerful for me because I had definitely internalized that the outdoors were not for me because that's not how I was raised. I didn't know anyone who did that kind of stuff. And anytime that I would see something that was publicized or maybe like, you know, there was a memoir about it, it was usually, you know, young, really fit dudes in their 20s or just like something that I felt like I couldn't relate to as a woman in her early 30s who didn't have experience doing that. And that's what it was when I read your book. I was like, okay, well, here's someone else who's in their early 30s who didn't, you know, like grow up doing this kind of thing and she didn't die. So maybe I'm not going to die. Like it really, that is really what it was for me. And I mean, obviously, of course, this is like part of the larger conversation of why representation is so important in general, that like seeing someone else that you can identify with do something, it does switch switch something for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's really interesting how that works. How do you feel like your motivations for long distance hiking have evolved or changed in the last five years? I feel like when I first started doing it, it was like the learning curve was so steep for me that that sort of what it was all about was like, acquiring all these new skills and challenging myself in a way I never challenged myself. And that was like enough for me. Like that was like deeply satisfying. And I feel like the reason my book about the PCT is compelling is because I was such a noob. And so everything was really new and really hard and some things went really awry. And that's like what made the story great. And, um, I feel like that's like really valid. Like when people are, first getting into something that's really outside of their like wheelhouse. It's like often like, I feel like a really amazing story when you're like growing a lot. But then I, um, but then I sort of wasn't growing and because, you know, I hiked the PCT, then I hiked it again. And then I hiked the CDT, which is similar. And then it's just a five month trail where you're just like walking every day. And, um, and then I started to like, see more in the outdoors community, like what the outdoors community was because I'd been immersed in it for a few years. And I started to see like all of these people, you know, it's mostly white and it's mostly people who come from, you know, families with money and different things. And I mean, it's not, that's not 100% what it is, but it is mostly like white people with money and they're taking all these risks, things that for them were big risks, you know, in, in a lot of ways, people, who long distance hike are being very brave, like they're, um, you know, they're like risking like stability that they might have and they're like pushing their body and they're risking loneliness and they're going out into the woods where we're all taught, you know, that is a terrible place where bad things happen and they're learning that that's not true and they're like getting strong and all these things. And I feel like there's a lot of bravery, but then a lot of, but then people don't take risks in other ways very much. Um, and I feel like I, for whatever reason, I've always, I feel like been part of like radical subculture since I was like 19. And I feel like in the subcultures I've been part of, people are always taking different risks 
and like in, in an attempt to try and find ways to live that feel better and less like oppressive and more authentic and, and to help to like change the word, change the world for the better, which requires a lot of risk. I feel like, like doing activism or like, you know, any sort of organizing or like, you know, if you're part of like a marginalized group and like speaking up and like changing the narrative, like all these things take like this inherent risk. And I'd always found that like really admirable and like always made me feel like, I'm like, this is what life is about. It's like about taking risks. And then in the long distance hiking community, I see all these white people who come from money or like, you know, middle-class families who are very like, have all this privilege taking a very specific kind of risk, but no other risk. And I was, and it just like, it made me feel bummed ultimately. And, mm-hmm. and also, and then, you know, I saw really a lot of really terrible behavior and like realized it was sort of this container in which people take this one kind of risk, but then are really terrible in other ways. And then that's like really accepted and it's sort of accepted as the status quo. And that was like really disappointing to me. So then my, my current fantasy is like, what if we can take the long distance hiking community in particular and the outdoors community in general and make it more of a like sort of a force for organizing you know, in the current like political and like social climate, because I feel like there's so many intersections between like wilderness and the kind of risks people take. Like when you, when you become part of some outdoors culture, you really are like bucking the status quo in a lot of ways, but then people really cling to the status quo in every other way. And I don't feel like it has to be that way. I feel like people could really be like a real force for change. Mm -hmm. And so I think about that a lot. So right now that's kind of what I'm thinking about. And, um, I also feel like I really want to, like, I have an online platform, you know, it's not like a huge online platform by any means, but I feel like within the world of long distance hiking, um, it's a pretty big online platform. And I feel like if I can leverage that, because whatever risk I take, there's going to be way less pushback because I I'm like a thin white person than, you know, if I was fat or if I was a person of color or all these different things, like, so I can take so many more risks than so many more people. And so I feel like whatever I can leverage to sort of shift the narrative or shift resources or whatever towards like people of color and like more marginalized groups to like try and I feel like there's so many there's also, I mean, I'm, in, I'm really inspired and heartened and I am able to do this also because so many other people are doing this right now. Like there's all these organizations and individuals and like people from marginalized communities who are working to shift the narrative and the conversation around outdoors culture. And so I feel like I am, I also feel like I'm a little bit late to the party. I feel like I kind of low key spent too much time in the woods. And then I came out and I was like, Oh my gosh, like this is happening and it's amazing and that made it actually less of a risk for me because so many other people are doing it that it's actually like, I feel I'm not actually risking anything at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, but that's one of the things that I is always a really good gut check and reminder. I've seen this happen in um, 
comments on your Instagram where like you'll speak out about something that's important and there will be some comment from someone along the lines of like, oh, you're so brave for speaking out about this and you're always really quick to say, I mean, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but my memory is like something along the lines of like, it's actually not that brave because I have nothing to lose other than followers, right? This idea of like kind of checking that, I don't know, there's something in that that's been powerful for me. Yeah, I feel like I'll always get, because of my privilege, I'll always get less pushback and more kudos for everything that I do. And so as long as I keep that in mind, I feel like it helps me keep sort of like my eye on the prize, you know, it helps me be like, okay, like, how can I risk more? And I mean, there's so much, you know, I'm trying, I'm still in the process of like trying to figure out like how to be most helpful, you know? And, um, Mm -hmm. I, I don't feel like I'm like really at the place I want to be yet, but yeah, it's, it's, it's good for me to constantly think about that. Like, yeah, I'm always getting, like, I hardly get any, um, I hardly get trolled at all on Instagram. I mean, bless Instagram. I feel like it's probably one of the best social medias as far as that. Like, you know, God, if I was on YouTube or something, I'm, it would probably be worse, but I hardly get trolled. I feel like I can kind of just say whatever I want. People are very supportive and I know that that's not the case for so many people. Like if I was black, yeah. if I was fat, like it would be really different <laughs> if mm-hmm. I was like transgender. And um, so I'm like, okay, okay. Like that's where it's at. Like, what can I do? Like, how can I, how can I help? Um, but yeah, it's, I feel like it's like a process. <laughs> Will you talk about the fundraiser that you're doing with your upcoming hike? Yeah. So, um, So I did some work, some humanitarian aid work around the border in Arizona these last two winters. And one thing I learned about that I'd never really thought about much before is white saviorism. And, and, and the people who do work down there are constantly thinking about it and constantly in conversation about it. And it was really cool to me to learn about it. And it's, it's this idea that white people have, and that I've definitely had, and, you know, we all feel like white people everywhere. We're all guilty of this. We see a marginalized community of color and there's this idea that like we know what's best for those people and that we are going to help because we know what's best. And, and I feel like that's, it's a story that you see a lot in like movies, like even like avatar, like the movie avatar, you know, like you see it a lot in media and movies and TV and all these things. It's like white saviorism. It's such an intense, it's like this white man goes into this community of color and he likes becomes their leader and saves them all. And by becoming their leader, you know, and what really needs to happen is the marginalized communities who are actually the ones being affected by the thing that's going on need to be the ones with the voice and the resources and need to be the ones in control of the narrative. And so, you know, I'm from Alaska. Um, in my 20, I left when I was 14. And then throughout my 20s, I used to go up there and work every summer, but I haven't lived there year round since I was 14. And I'm also white. And the Arctic, especially so Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is this wilderness area in the northeastern part of Alaska that has been protected for a long time and was the coastal plains of Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which is called Area 1002, was just open for drilling last fall as this rider on a tax bill that Trump signed into law. And 
that area, there's been 50 attempts to open it for drilling. This is the first time it was successful. And for decades, people have been attempting to open it for drilling and failing. And part of the reason that it's been protected is because the Gwich'in people who have called it home for 40,000 years have fought so hard to protect it. Like they have been so crucial in the fight in like the legislation and the organizing and everything to protect this area. And the amount of oil there is just enough to power the U.S. for one year, approximately, according to USGS surveys, which you can find on the Wikipedia page. And it would destroy one of the last intact wildernesses left on earth and the porcupine caribou herd which numbers around 200,000 goes there every year to have their calves and the reason they calve there is because it's breezy and relatively free of parasites and flies and also predators and so it's like a peaceful place where they can migrate to from really long distances have their calves hang out for a bit and then go back to where they live the rest of the year and without that area which would 100% be taken away if there was oil and natural gas drilling there, the porcupine caribou herd would be in a lot of danger. And the Gwich'in people, their whole culture is based around the porcupine caribou herd. And their settlements have traditionally been along the migratory routes of the caribou. And they still live a mostly subsistence lifestyle. So they're hunting and fishing for most of their food. And they still eat tons of the caribou every year. And uh, because Alaska is one of the last places it's maybe the only place in the U.S. where you can still live a subsistence lifestyle where you can get like most of your food from hunting and fishing and actually not participate that much in the cash economy. So there are all these people in rural Alaska who do that. And on paper, they're maybe very poor, but they're just not participating in the cash economy as much as people in the rest of the country are because they're hunting and fishing so much and gathering and they just don't need to. And it's really amazing that that's even possible anywhere. And this is one of those areas and the caribou are a big part of that. And so the Gwich'in people have, not only are they the ones who are most affected by this proposed drilling, I mean, we all lose this wilderness area, you know, but to be real, they are, you know, they lose a lot more and they're, they're more affected. They've also mm-hmm. been the ones fighting the hardest over many decades. And before that, you could say tens of thousands of years to protect this area because they have been sort of like the stewards of the land for so long there. And um, I feel like as a white person, the, maybe the most useful thing I can do is just like ask what they need and do that. And so I talked to, um, talk to a couple of people who are like part of different organizations in that community. And they told me about Defend the Sacred AK, which is a coalition of different Alaska Native led organizations all working to protect sacred lands in Alaska and in particular Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And they were like, we need money. And I was like, that makes so much sense. And I also feel like I'm a white person, a white outdoors person with white networks and white people, white organizations have a much easier time fundraising than organizations of color. I saw that when I, I saw this when I was in Southern Arizona doing humanitarian aid work It's like, the organizations that were white, even though you were working in community with populations of color, if the organization was white and the white people had white networks, it was so much easier for them to fundraise than the communities of color because of the way, you know, historically where wealth is concentrated. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, basically that. And also the way organizations are perceived by other communities with wealth, which are often white communities. Like if you're a white organization, you're perceived a certain way 
by other white people with money. Whereas if you're a community of color, it's like you're perceived a certain way. And so I feel like as a white person, like working on shifting resources feels like useful. And I wanted to do this hike across Alaska and I care. And I was like, if I care about Alaska, like this is maybe what feels more useful. <laughs> mm-hmm. And one of the things that, um, you have done, which I, I mean, I think has been really effective. You can like speak to it, but as you've been writing blog posts, you've essentially been giving teasers of blog posts and, and saying like, I'm not going to put this up until we reach like the next funding goal. And then the next funding goal that it's like been this like really interesting process. It's of watching. That's not just like you set a funding goal and then kind of like left it and didn't you know, like, it's, it seems like you're really actively involved in it in a way that's like, I will unblock this. Like I will put this up once, you know, y'all give more money. And I don't I, like, I've really enjoyed watching you fundraise (laughs) it's funny how satisfying it is it's like yeah I just I thought of that and I was like I don't know if this is going to work but I was like okay my goal is five thousand dollars for this organization to fend the sacred AK and I'm just gonna every time I write a blog post I'm gonna be like I wrote this blog post on my social media I'm gonna be like I wrote this blog post but I'm not gonna put it up yeah until the fundraiser reaches this point I was like I don't know if that's gonna work But so far it's working and that feels great because I feel like, yeah, like people, white outdoors community, I feel like is much less likely to give to an organization of people of color. And this way I can sort of leverage how people, like people want to read these blog posts, you know, because people are like, oh, like this trip is so epic. Like what's going to happen? You know, which is exactly how I feel. (laughs) Um, and I would feel the same way. I'd be like, ah, I want to read it. Um, and so, so I, th- I think it's working. People are like, ah, I just want to read this. And so they'll- I mean, I think it's definitely working. I mean, you're an incredible writer. We all follow your writing for a reason. And like, you're going on this. It's, I feel like it's a really clear, real life, tangible, maybe small example, but I think powerful example of, you know, when people talk about sort of assessing the platform and how to use the platform, like actually thinking critically, like, okay, why do people follow me? Okay. One of the main reasons is because um, for you, like, oh, that they want to read these blog posts. Okay. So if I make the blog post attached to the, like, it, it makes a lot of sense. Like there's a lot of logic there that's that seems if your goal is to shift resources that let like it's a very clear leveraging that you're doing which I think is powerful yeah I am I'm pretty excited about it also because I know that the money is going to really concrete things like just having being able to fundraise and give money so directly like I know this money is like going to pay for travel expenses it's going to pay for you know people to like you know, maybe like website development and food for organizing events and like whatever. It just, it feels really good that it's like so direct as opposed to like a more like abstract maybe organizing or an organization that isn't such like, isn't so direct. So that feels really good. And then I also know that this trip is going to take anywhere from like 50 to 60 ish days. And so that's how many blog posts I'll have. And I'm actually going to leverage everyone. (laughs) um and see how much I can raise <laughs> which is exciting to me no I mean that's awesome I it was, it's funny I I donated to your fundraiser before I even really understood what it's about I was like oh Carrot's doing this like that checks out whatever this is I'm gonna, and then as I start to learn about it more I'm gonna put links to all this stuff in the show notes too so other people can hopefully donate as well um but no I'm also very excited to read your blog post about this hike that's the the remind me the name of the route that you did last year 
Uh, was it the Kings Canyon High Basin route? Yeah. Okay. So when you were posting your blog post about that was when I was on the Arizona Trail and I would read them on my phone in my tent, right? Like I'd like, take my phone into my sleeping bag with my like freezing cold <laughs> fingers and I would read, first of all, that route... I'm having such a hard time even hiking like established trails. Reading what you went through on that, it was like blowing my I think I texted you. It was like blowing my mind. And so every single one, I'm like, okay, yeah, what's gonna happen next? What's gonna happen next? What because it's like long distance hiking is new for me. And then that level of cross-country travel and the elements and all that, like it's so fascinating. So I can imagine that people will be equally as eager to read about the route you're doing in Alaska, especially just because so much of us, so many of us haven't read about something like that before. Yeah, I'm really excited to find out what happens too. <laughs> you're like, me too, Shrug. Let's see. <laughs> no, the Kings Canyon High Basin route was really amazing and I really recommend it. Um, it was very slow, but other, but once I had accepted that, I was like, no, this is just, you know, nine miles a day. It's going to take me 10 hours to go nine miles. And it was like, awesome. It was so great. So speaking of writing and pivoting a little bit, I guess, um, obviously pretty much everyone in this community and everyone in my life, to be honest, knows how much I loved your first book and that it was your book and blog that got me out there to begin with. So I'm really excited that you're working on a second book. And I'd love to talk about that a bit if you're up for it. Yeah. So I am working, I'm like 75% done with the first draft of my second book. And I actually, the last five months, my intention had been to work on it a lot. And I actually have not gotten that much done. And it made me realize that the reason I was able to finish my first book is because I was a year late on fulfilling the Kickstarter because I did a Kickstarter for my first book where I was like, I'm going to do this Kickstarter. I'm going to write this book. And then everyone who contributes, I will like mail them a book or multiple books or whatever. And then I was a year late and finishing and that like lit this fire under my ass that helped me finish. And it overrode like any like perfectionism I had or any fear about it not being good enough. And I honestly put it out there thinking that it wasn't that good of a book. And then people like it a lot. And I was like, oh, like my experience with that book, that's just what a book is. Like it just always feels that way. And then the second book, I don't have that outside pressure because no one's waiting. Like, I don't have like, a, I'm not, I don't like, I don't have a threat of public humiliation, which I realize is actually really helpful. <laughs> there's no threat. There's no like agent or book deal or Kickstarter, anyone like waiting on me, like tapping their feet, like low key, ready to like publicly shame me for failing at this thing. And so it's been really hard for me to get work done on it, even though even though I'm having so much fun writing it and I love writing it and I'm really excited about it, this like perfectionism creeps in and I'm, and it like paralyzes me and I don't have this outside pressure to like overwrite that, which has been really interesting. And so what I'm going to try and do now, so next winter I'm going to be working on it again and I'm going to try, I don't know. I'm like, maybe I can find an agent that will sell a book deal based just on a book proposal because then it, it won't have to be finished, but it will give me this outside pressure to finish it by a certain time. But then I also don't know if that's feasible because my first book, I wasn't able to find an agent who was interested in selling it. And I ended up self-publishing, which was great. It was a great experience, but um, yeah, I wasn't able to find that. But I'm like, okay, that would be a scenario where if there was like someone, if I was able to sell the book proposal and then someone was like tapping their foot being like, okay, you have like 18 months or whatever to complete this. Um, I think that would really help. So 
I'm really- yeah, I mean, there's there's something powerful about knowing what it is that helps you get shit done. Essentially, like, I'm the same way. I think there's definitely such a thing as too much time, right? Or like, if I can just work on this endlessly in this vacuum where no one's really waiting on it, then the perfectionism comes up, then the procrastination, yeah. then all the things. Whereas, like, I look back at the history of things that I've created. This for the podcast too. It's like, okay, well, I said that the whole season was going to go up on this day, so what? I'm, I'm not just going to not do it, right? And then, like, sure, does it mean that it's perfect? No. Are there things that I would change? Sure. Oh ways, but it gets done. And so that completely checks out what you're saying. So it's like figuring out, okay, if this is something that I need in order to do my best work, then it's up to me to create that circumstance somehow. Yeah, definitely. Like I I just took it for granted that, that I think I just realized this year that nothing will ever feel perfect and that that's not a reflection of whether or not it has value. Like nothing I create is ever going to feel perfect or even necessarily even finished but that doesn't mean it has value. That doesn't mean it doesn't have value. And that's like such a trip because I'll read someone else's book and I'll be like, Oh, this is perfect. But I'm sure they felt the same way where they were like, Oh, this isn't quite how I want it to be. I should have spent, I should have spent six more months working on it or, you know, whatever. But it's, it's really interesting to try, yeah, to try and get rid of that thing in me. That's like, Oh, that keeps me from working on something because I feel like, it's not going to be perfect or something, but yeah, having, yeah, having that outside pressure like overrides that. And I'm just like, Oh shit, fuck it. I don't care. Like I kind of have to be in a space where I like, I'm like, I don't give a fuck if it's not perfect in order to write. And, um, I think that's why I enjoy blogging on trail so much because there's such low pressure with blogs that I know it doesn't, I don't care if it's perfect. And so it just helps me like keep up a writing practice. <laughs> oh no, I mean, a hundred percent. Even, I mean, when I was in Arizona last year on the Arizona trail, I did, I mean, what I think of as like mini blog posts, right? Like on Instagram every day. And I'm going to do the same thing on the PCT. And it was some of the most enjoyable writing that I've done for exactly that reason. There's like a sense of urgency that it's basically like, and I'm like so raw already and emotional that it's like, just tell the truth and then just put it up and, and move on. Like I don't yeah. have time to sort of overanalyze or have all of yeah. my usual sort of like creative demon bullshit come up and it was incredibly enjoyable for me just churn it out just churn it out yeah so um will you give a quick synopsis the book that you're working on right now what it's about yeah yeah um so it is so i really want to i love memoir i love reading memoir so much um i like writing memoir but there's also a lot of other things I want to write. So this is the memoir I'm writing so that I can just sort of be done with memoir. So, okay. <laughs> so my first book was about me hiking the PCT. And so that was memoir, but this is going to be about my whole life up into like my early twenties. And, um, so like, uh, I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska and my mom is schizophrenic and she, you know, we grew up on welfare. My dad just disappeared when I was four never paid child support. And we, my brother and I grew up on welfare, but because she was schizophrenic, um, it's really hard for her to keep up with like all the paperwork and all the different hoops you have to jump through to keep your assistance, which is really unfortunate because I feel like the families and kids that need that the most often have like parents with like mental illness or addiction or different things that even makes it harder to jump through the hoops and it becomes this horrible like cycle. Um, but so we were like constantly like losing our benefits, getting evicted, all these different things. And so we would live in, you know, section eight housing and then we would be like sleeping on friends' couches and then we would be in a shelter. And like I was in, um, my brother and I were in separate foster homes for two years. And uh, I just like basically didn't have parents because, 
you know, schizophrenia is a really intense illness. And, um, you know, you can have a really good quality of life. Like I have an aunt who's also schizophrenic and she, her story played out really different than my mom's and her quality of life is really great. And, um, so, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, really terrible, but with my mom, the way it played out, um, she never got any help and she, uh, yeah, she just wasn't a parent at all in any way. Um, and she, you know, she just was suffering a really, really great amount and wasn't able to care for anyone at all. And so my brother and I just kind of raised ourselves and raised each other and it was really dark, but it was also really beautiful, um, in some ways. And one aspect of it is that my family is really sort of conservative. My, my extended family is very like working class Catholic, conservative Irish Catholic for better or worse. And, um, my mom, the way her Catholicism manifested is her main delusion was that she's the, or her main delusion is, I actually don't know if she's still alive. I haven't spoken to her in a lot of years. And she's a, she's a homeless person in Anchorage, Alaska, basically. And one idea I had this last winter when I realized that this Brooks Range Traverse was really going to happen is I was like, maybe I'll try and find my mom because I haven't seen her. I haven't seen her in 21 years. And so since I was 14, when I was 14, my grandparents adopted me and I left Alaska and that was the last time I saw her. And so I've talked to her on the phone, but not for like 10 years. And so I started calling homeless shelters and different places in Anchorage. And it's actually really, really hard to find a homeless person, even if they're your mom, it's basically impossible. And that was really shocking and sad to realize. And I think on some level I knew that, but then once I actually started, because I, I hadn't sought her out before because it's incredibly triggering in the 100%, um, textbook definition of the word for me to talk to her. And so I was like, I'm not in a good enough place to see her. And then I was like, maybe this year I can do it. And so I started trying to find her and it just was not possible, but I don't know if she's alive, but so her main delusion is that, and was that she is the reincarnation of the Virgin Mary. And so all of her hallucinations are like demons and the devil and saints and different people talking to her. And so we would go to church a lot, but it would be at really random times. And we would just spend a lot of time in Catholic churches in Anchorage. And it was always really cold outside. I was always really hungry and really dirty. And she'd be like dragging me by the hand on the street. We'd take like the city bus to get to these church, to get downtown to like where the big, beautiful church was that we went to. And we would go inside and it would be so warm and peaceful and smell like incense. And she would like go into the little room with all the candles and like kneel on the ground and start like speaking in tongues. And I just like wander around in the church, like touching Bibles and like looking at the stained glass. And anyway, so I have this, my childhood was like very dark and very like also this like hallucinatory version of Catholicism and like, I don't know. So it's about that. And then, um, it's about how, so I ended up with all this trauma. Also, she was like really, really physically and emotionally abusive. I think largely because of her mental illness, she just had zero capacity. And when people, you know, are experiencing extreme amounts of stress and under a lot of pressure, I feel like they're a lot more likely to be abusive to their kids and, you know, financial stress and, you know, socioeconomic stress and everything and mental health stuff, addiction, whatever. And so my grandparents adopted me when I was 14 and I moved to Colorado and they are like conservative, they were working class. They sort of worked way up to like middle-class racist bigots who think that college ruins women. 
They don't think anyone should go to college. No one in my family goes to college. They actually blocked me from going to college after I graduated high school. Um, they are horrible. They were really mean to me. They, their like parenting technique was you never say anything nice to a kid's face because it will ruin them, quote unquote, ruin them. And so they would just tell me that I was a failure and I would never amount to anything. And I sort of, so they adopted both me and my brother. And so we sort of rolled up at their doorstep with really intense PTSD. And I didn't know, you know, I didn't have language at the time and they didn't have language for it. And bless them, they were like in their 60s, they were retired, they'd raised six kids. And here we were, these two like really problem teenagers um, that they didn't even want to adopt. They did not want to adopt us. They just were forced to. So I lived with them for three years and it was really rough. And then when I was 17, I moved on on my own and my life got better. And then when I was 19, I moved to Portland and like fell in with all these like straight edge anarchists who were like, basically I was at that point, I was so disillusioned by like so many things in life. And then I found these people who were like, you know what we find, you know, we think that shit is fucked. And we, what we want to do is learn about how we can make, how we can live a life that feels better and how we can like um, do things for ourselves and sort of like figure things out on our own. And that was really appealing to me and it was awesome. And so then I was around like all these really positive influences and um, like queer community. I found queer community in Portland and um, yeah, so it's like about that. And I think the overarching theme of the book is sort of like, why is there suffering and why, like just, it's kind of like about the human condition, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to be the first in line to buy this book. So <laughs> there's just that. Um, this might be a strange question, but given that you're writing memoir, but I mean, creative nonfiction, I feel like there's so many parallels between it still has to be a good story the way that fiction does. The, I'm interested in your thoughts about the process of creating yourself as a character. Like, how do you, because I feel like you did that really well in your first book. How do you think about that? Well, okay. So I've only ever taken one writing class, and writing classes are awesome, but it just hasn't been my jam but I took one once and the teacher Robin Rom who wrote a memoir that I really like one of the first things she said it was a fiction class but she was a memoir writer one of the first things she said is there's no difference between memoir and fiction and I 100% believe that to be true and it doesn't mean that in memoir you lie or you make things up I mean whatever I'm sure people do and you can if you want but that's not what that means what it means is that you're taking events and you're crafting them into a compelling story by like focusing on some details, leaving other details out, pacing, character development, and all those things. So it's it's totally the same. And it was only in the 90s that it became socially acceptable to write memoir. Before then, it was like you had to be like a president or someone famous or people thought you were like a huge jerk if you tried to write a memoir. And so people wrote memoir and they called it fiction. Like if you look at like Jack Kerouac or James Baldwin or all these different authors who were writing, um, what really was memoir or like mostly memoir. And then everything was just sold as fiction. And so nothing's really changed. It's just that now it's socially acceptable to say that like, this is a real story that happened and write it as memoir. Um, but you still have to craft it the same. And so like the story my book about through hiking will break your heart about my first hike of the PCT. I did think of myself as a character. And so I focused on certain details and sort of highlighted those details. And then other things that were like repetitive or boring, 
Um, well, when I first, so the first draft of the book was my blog from the trail, which was like 170,000 words or something, 175,000 words. And a lot of it was really, really boring. So one thing you do, you know, when you're writing memoir or any story is you want to cut out all the boring stuff. So I had a friend and I was like, who volunteered to do this, which was really amazing. My friend, Allison, I'm actually going to stay with her when we're in, um, when we get to Fairbanks and Bunny and I get to Fairbanks on Sunday, we're staying with Allison and her partner, Kay, which I'm really excited about. So Allison did this for me, which was like above and beyond. She like read the whole manuscript and I was like, just start highlighting when it's boring and stop highlighting when it's interesting again. And so I was able to cut out so much that was boring. So that's, um, that's part of how you craft the story. Um, as you just, you, it's almost, it's also almost like cinematography or photography where you like, you use your eye and you find what's interesting and you focus on that and you paint this beautiful picture and then of that interesting thing. And then you stitch the interesting thing bits together to create this like story. So yeah, that's how I feel <laughs> about mm-hmm. memoir. Yeah, no, I'm, (laughs) that makes a lot of sense completely. And obviously, like, I'm thinking about those same things. Um, So this is going to be a hard right turn, like a complete pivot, but let's take it anyway. When you and I were in Portland together in January before our magical writing retreat at the Oregon coast, which is still one of my favorite parts of this year so far, (laughs) by the way, so thank you for that. Um, That needs to be like some kind of annual situation. But when we were in Portland together, you spoke at um, an awesome event, uh, Queer Adventure Storytelling. And I would love for you to tell us the story that you told at that event, because it's awesome and super necessary, I think, to be told on a large platform. So I think that when it's all said and done, this will be one of the greatest stories of my life. (laughs) Uh, So I had really intense digestive issues for a long time. They started probably 10 years ago, but had always been manageable as long as I cut out certain foods. And then but they were sort of getting worse, but I just, you know, was careful about what I ate and it was okay. And then I was on the continental divide trail and I got Giardia and I took Flagyl. And there's this thing that is documented that sometimes happens, maybe often, I don't know, where people get Giardia, take Flagyl, and then they develop IBS. And that is 100% what happened to me. I developed IBS and chronic fatigue after having Giardia and taking Flagyl. And at first, it was like the gut issues I'd always had, where if I just cut out even more stuff, I was okay. So I was like, okay, not only can I not eat gluten, dairy, and soy, which had always been my food intolerances, but now I can't eat grain, and I can't eat nuts, and I can't eat eggs. And I sort of started eating autoimmune paleo, which is really restrictive, also really low-key reminded me of when I had an eating disorder because of how restrictive and antisocial it was. And so that really stressed me out because I was not trying to have disordered eating. But suddenly I was in a place where I couldn't make food with other people. I couldn't eat socially. I like felt really stressed if I went to like a potluck, all these different things. Like someone would be like, let's, I'd be going on a date. And someone would be like, let's cook food together. And I'd almost want to start crying. Like I would be like, please don't ask me to do that. Because the food I was eating, I was eating nothing but meat, vegetables, and sweet potatoes, pretty much and avocados. And if I fucked up, I felt like shit. And other people are like, oh, I like those foods too. We can cook those together. And I was like, I don't even want to do that because I'm so sick of them. I feel depressed every time I eat. I was like, oh, this is terrible. And then there were times where I couldn't stick to my autoimmune paleo diet. Like when I was hiking, I did eventually 
find a way to eat autoimmune paleo or or paleo, a way to eat paleo on trail, which was kind of interesting. Um, but it was really depressing and it hurt my stomach. <laughs> and, uh, I would just mess up a lot. Cause there were times when I couldn't stick to the autoimmune paleo diet. And then every, whenever I messed up or had periods where I couldn't eat that way, I felt so sick and, um, you know, chronic fatigue, you know, if you have chronic fatigue or if you know someone who does, it's really, I mean, it's just a fucking bummer. It's like, I would wake up every day exhausted. Like if I, it got to the point where if I exercised, I would feel sick. If I had any stress at all, I would feel sick. Um, I started to feel like I couldn't feel any pleasure. Um, even if I was sleeping enough, I felt so tired in between every short activity I would have to like lay down. I stopped being able to like focus. Well, I would get really intense brain fog, which was actually the worst part. Cause that made me feel like I was developing Alzheimer's. Like I was like, Whoa, this is intense. Like I couldn't remember anything. I would ask someone the same question like three times in a row. Um, I would forget people's names that I knew really well while speaking to them. I would, you know, I would have some simple organization task, like, Oh, I need to pack a bag to go out for a week in the desert with this humanitarian aid group. And it, I would be so overwhelmed by that task, like packing a bag that I would start to cry um, I stopped being able to read very well. Like I couldn't like read, like my vision was weird and like whatever was going on in my brain, like it was hard to read. And, and those are all things that are like part of chronic fatigue. Um, and it's also really unfortunate cause it's like invisible to others. So that, so the sort of chronic fatigue and IBS would come and go at first. It would be like, I would feel good for a few weeks and then I would feel sick for a week. I would feel good for a few weeks and then I would feel sick for a few weeks. So when I was on the Hayduke trail, which was after the CDT, it, I was in that place. So I was able to hike and then I would get sick and I would have to take like three days off in town and then I would start to feel better and I would go back out and, I, but I could sort of like twist my life around it. And then as time went on, I hiked the, I hiked the CDT in 2015. And as the years went on, it was getting worse and worse to the point where the times where I was felt good, got shorter and shorter and then by the time it was winter 2016, 2017, so, or like the first few months of 2017, it was so bad that I was in a really dark place. And I was like, I like my diet is so restrictive. I re I've removed so much stress from my life. I'm not exercising at all because all these things trigger a flare where I'll like my whole body work hurt and I'll be exhausted and my stomach will be upset and I'll have brain fog. And so I was like, I just can't do anything. I was like, I feel like I don't have a future. Um, and I was living off, I make some royalties every month for my book. And then I also like do some freelance journalism. And then every year in the fall, I like trim weed for several months. And all I was, I was just living off those monthly royalties, which was not really enough. And I was like, I, I don't know what my future is. Like, I honestly, I was like, I have no future. My life is over. And then I was hanging out with a couple of friends and one of them, she was like, you know, I have a friend who had the same symptoms as you and she did fecal transplants and now she's cured. And I feel like in the chronic illness world, you hear a lot about people managing their symptoms. Like you hear like, Oh, I completely changed my diet and it manages my symptoms or I start doing this or that or whatever. And I had been doing all of those things, but you never hear cured. You never hear that someone was cured. And I was sort of had this moment uh, where the record stopped and I sort of latched onto that. And I was like, wait, how can that be real? So I started Googling it. And it turns out that sometimes you can do something that wipes out 
So in your gut, you have like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of species of bacteria and also viruses and fungus, and they all play a role in your gut. So your gut is the place where your body, I don't know if it makes serotonin or regulates serotonin, but something, 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 serotonin comes from there, or your serotonin is made when your gut is functioning well, something, something like that. And then B vitamins are created in your gut and all these different things happen in your gut that they say there's this like really intense connection between your gut and your brain, almost to the point that it's like part of your brain is in your gut. And I was really feeling that because there was something off in my gut and it was really affecting my like um, energy, my mental health, my ability to like think clearly. There's such an intense connection between your brain and your gut and you can do something like, for example, flagell is a broad spectrum antibiotic. So it wipes out a greater amount of species and you can wipe out a bunch of your species and then not be able to replace them because they're just gone. And if you take probiotics, that's only like a handful of species, like on the probiotic bottle, it says like 8 million or whatever. But what that means is 8 million of like a couple of species. Whereas in your gut, you have hundreds and hundreds of species. And a lot of them, we don't even understand what they even do, but they're necessary. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and it's the same with fermented foods. You can eat fermented foods, but it's like fewer species. And, you know, it's not a guarantee that they're going to make it all the way down to your colon. So the idea with fecal transplant is you find someone, it's called your microbiome, all these bacteria living to get your, together in your gut, basically making your whole body function. You find someone who has a healthy microbiome and you take their poop, you mix it with water, you squirt it up your butt with an enema, you hold it for an hour, and then you poop it out. And you do that a number of times, and their bacteria will like inoculate your colon and replace the bacteria you're missing. The other thing that happens when you're missing really important bacteria is it leaves this vacancy, and bad bacteria will, will grow and you'll have an overgrowth of bad bacteria and you can't get rid of those bad bacteria no matter what you do because you need the good bacteria to take their place. It's like a mature ecosystem, like a mature old growth forest, like Himalayan blackberries are this invasive species in the Pacific Northwest and any disturbed in any disturbed area, like a field or a yard or whatever, they just take over. And if you don't cut them back, they will just, it'll become a giant bramble. But if it's, if you go here to like an old growth forest, the blackberries, these invasive blackberries can't get a toehold because everything is occupied by these indigenous species. So your gut is the same way. If you have all your flora intact, they occupy the entire territory and the bad bacteria, you can't have an overgrowth of bad bacteria. And there's even some hospitals. So I started Googling and I learned that there's even some hospitals where instead of cleaning surfaces, with antibacterial products, they actually have this probiotic spray that is bacteria and they spray a surface and that good bacteria crowds out all the bad bacteria. So that's essentially what's supposed to happen in your gut if you have your good bacteria. And another thing that's unfortunate is a lot of people with autoimmune diseases will eat paleo in order to manage their inflammation, which can be really helpful. But paleo can kill your gut flora because you need certain starches to feed your gut flora. And so what will happen is over time, you can actually really harm your gut flora and lose species if you eat paleo for a long time, which is something that's happening now because so many people, there's so much autoimmune disease and so many people are using paleo to manage it, to manage the inflammation that people are actually damaging their gut flora, which is really interesting. So 
Um, and then I read different accounts. Like there's this one really specific account that's amazing where this woman was a cyclist. Um, she had Lyme's disease. She'd had it for a long time. And then one year she did this insane regimen of antibiotics and finally killed the Lyme's disease. But because she'd taken so many antibiotics, she killed off her gut flora and ended up with IBS and chronic fatigue, much like what I had. And so she did a fecal transplant. Oh, and she's a microbiologist too. And it's like an article I found online. She's a microbiologist. So she did a fecal transplant, um, cured her IBS and chronic fatigue, and within like six months was winning races. So then she actually studied, the transplant had been from a friend of hers who was a competitive cyclist. So then she studied his poop and discovered that when you're training, when you're an athlete who trains, there's this one specific bacteria that grows in your gut. And so then she started this thing she calls poop doping, where she will help <laughs> She will help people by giving them transplants of this back of this bacteria to help with their training, which is really interesting. That's so wild. Okay, so so you found uh, and I can put links to stuff like this in show notes because I know you've talked about this in your blog too. So you found a friend who met the criteria for to be like a good poop donor and then just did that. Yeah. So all the information, all the important information is on this website called thepowerofpoop.com, which is one thing that's on there that's really great is um, they have a list. So when you're looking for a donor, they have to meet all of these specifications. And when you first read it, you're like, I don't know anyone who has this. Like it has to be no food intolerances, really regular, normal bowel movements, no depression, no anxiety, no acne, all these different things. And you're like, I don't know anybody who fits that, but it turns out I don't fit that. No way. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I can't give you poop. <laughs> yeah. But the crazy thing is once you start talking to people, it turns out that low key, there are these people who are like, I don't have any health issues. And you're like, what, what are you talking about? You're like, about? can you poop in this Tupperware for me? <laughs> yeah. Like people, for example, they can't have mood swings. And I was like, that's not real. I was like, everyone has mood swings. So a friend of mine, Sai, this person, she was like, no, I, I don't have any of those issues. And I was like, you don't have mood swings? And she's like, no. And I was like, in my head, I was like, that's crazy. I was like, everyone has mood swings. And at the point, my mood swings had gotten so bad that they were like debilitating because I would swing between feeling okay to feeling exhausted, to feeling sad, to feeling okay, to feeling exhausted, feeling sad, like every 60 minutes. And it was terrible. And that's like a real marker of like IBS and chronic fatigue too. And I was so sick and so, but it turns out my friend Sai fit all these qualifications because I just started talking to everyone about it. Like everyone. I was like, I want to do this thing. And then most people are like, oh yeah, I, you know, I have this, I, I'm not a good donor. And then Sai was like, I, I could totally donate. And I was like, oh wow. So I was leaving Tucson and driving to Oregon. And I had this plan where I really wanted to hike the Washington section of the PCT, but I had been so sick. I hadn't been able to exercise really hardly at all. And I knew that as sick as I was, I wouldn't be able to do it. And I was also going to go like trim weed for a month beforehand in Oregon before I started hiking. And I just was feeling really down. But Sai was staying at her parents' house in Petaluma, California, which was on the way to Oregon. And I was like, I'll stop by and hang out for a few days and do this fecal transplant. And I had no expectations. I was so depressed. I was like, you know what? Like, this is crazy. It just sounds crazy. I'm just going to try it. But I have no expectations because life is just suffering and awful. And so I stayed at her parents' house. We woke up in the morning and I felt the way I did every morning at the time where I just woke up and it was like this storm cloud was hanging over me and I was like, life is hell. 
And I felt like my nerves were just fried and everything felt painful and nothing felt good. And, you know, she's usually, she said she's usually a really regular pooper, but because of the pressure, so she was like, I'll poop in a Tupperware, right? But because of the pressure, she didn't poop till noon, which was really funny. Uh, she's like, oh, it's too much pressure. So she pooped. And then I did the transplant, which I followed the instructions on the Power of Poop website. Um, they're up there. And if anyone wants to try it and they want to talk more specifically about it, feel free to email me and my email's on my blog and um, I'll just, you know, help, help you through it give you tips or whatever. And, um, we did the transplant and it was really easy. And then size life, let's go out for Thai food. And, you know, a Thai food was one of the things I could eat because you can get, you can get it without the rice, like a curry, and then it doesn't really have grain. So it like can fit in the autoimmune paleo sort of ish. And then it wouldn't make me feel really sick. So we went out to get Thai food and this was like three hours after the transplant and we're sitting in the Thai food restaurant and my food comes and I take a bite and I was like, this Thai food is incredible. I was like, is your Thai food good? And so I was like, I mean, yeah, she's like, my food's pretty good. And I was like, this is like the best Thai food I've ever had. And I was like, that's weird. I was like, that's interesting. I'm just at this like Thai food restaurant in this little town and it's like the best Thai food I've ever had. I was like, okay, that's interesting. And then so I was like, let's drive to the ocean. Cause we were really close to the ocean. And so then we're in her little like hatchback with the windows down, um, driving through the fog, through these hills in the fog, listening to Haley Kyoko. It's like really nice outside. Like, and you can smell the ocean just driving. And I'm like, this is incredible. Like there's like fog and we're like listening to pop music and just like driving and it's like beautiful and then we got to the ocean and I was like holy shit like the ocean it was like and we were just walking on the beach and I was like oh my god like the ocean is amazing and I was like and I have a friend and I have a dog and I was just like holy shit life is incredible and this is actually a documented thing that sometimes people do fecal transplants and they get really high for the first 24 hours. So that's what ended up happening to me. Um, it felt like I was on drugs, like really high for like 24 hours. I was just like, and what I think happened, I don't know exactly, but I feel like my body hadn't been making something like B vitamins, serotonin. I don't know what it was. And then I did this transplant and there was like this rush of that stuff. And I just felt like fucking incredible. So I shot way up. And then after 24 hours that faded, but I felt instead of feeling really sick, I just felt normal, which felt crazy. And, um, then, uh, my IBS and chronic fatigue went away and it never came back. That's, I honestly, and obviously of course, you know, disclaimer, this is not the case for everyone, whatever, you know, do poop things at your own risk. I don't know. But, um, when I first, I, I can't remember the first time that you told me this, but it, I was like, First of all, my mind was blown because I'd never heard of anyone doing this before. I didn't know that this was a thing that happened. And also just like profoundly grateful that you found something that worked. Yeah, me too. I mean, it just feels crazy. Like, okay, so some disclaimers is that it doesn't work this well for everyone. I have pressured multiple friends into trying it since then. And some friends have been very helped. Some friends have felt nothing. And some friends have been a little bit helped. Um, it is very low risk as long as you screen for you want to make sure the donor doesn't have HIV, hep C, um, parasites, 
and parasites, I think. And but that's all on the Power of Poop website. Like all of this is in great deal on the Power of Poop website. But as long as you screen for those things, it's very low risk. Uh, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence of people trying it and doing it with doctors. In other countries, you can get it in clinics a lot easier. And, you know, it's just, it's really low risk as long as you screen for a few things. Um, but it's not, it's definitely not like a magic bullet for everyone. It was, I think my problem was almost entirely rooted in the fact that I was really missing a lot of my gut flora. And it's, it's not that I feel like it's, I don't have like superpowers now. Now I just feel regular. Like when I first got to Portland a few months ago, I had like a respiratory infection for like a month, you know, like sometimes I'll have insomnia or like, um, I'll try to run and my stomach will hurt, you know, just like normal stuff. Mm -hmm. Whereas before I was like so chronically ill that it was destroying my entire life. Yeah. And that is gone. Like that is completely gone. Um, but now I'm just like regular, you know? <laughs> so to recap, fecal transplants can change your life. Um, <laughs> memoir and fiction are the same thing. Sometimes it's good to have external accountability to get goals done. Um, you learn how to do a thing by doing a thing and you can create routes. Um, you have nothing to lose other than followers on your platform. So speak out about shit and through hiking uh, can low key give you some disordered eating and be aware of that. And also you told us what's a really good pee jug if you want to pee in a van. So this has been a really wide-ranging, incredible conversation with Zem by Carrot Quinn. <laughs> um, it, I would love, usually we end these with um, some rapid-fire questions that um, are chosen by the Patreon community. But since this is a standalone bonus episode, I wanted to just hit you with some random long-distance hiking-related rapid-fire questions, if that's cool. Yeah, totally. Um, current favorite piece of gear? Oh, that's a really good question. So I just switched from a torso length NeoAir to a full length NeoAir and I haven't slept on it yet, but I got it for the Brooks range and I'm really excited because I was at the torso length because I was like, this is just how you have a light pack. You have the torso length and then you put your food bag under your feet and you make a pillow out of your bunched up rain jacket. And it was so fussy, so fussy every night. It's like making the pillow and then the pillow is not high enough and then the thing under your feet. And finally, I was just like, I'm 35 years old. Like, I'm too old to use a weird crunched rain jacket as a pillow. And if you have a full length NeoAir, it's long enough to have your head on it, which is amazing. I mean, I'm 5'7". It's long enough for me. I think it's long enough for taller people, too. Anyway, I'm really excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> Little pleasures. Um, mm -hmm. uh, what's a tip for taking better nature photos? Your photos are so beautiful. <laughs> Um, uh, the only photography trick I know is, uh, well, I have a, uh, I've been using the Samsung galaxy S series for a long time, which has a really good camera. I think a lot of Androids and also the iPhone now just have really good cameras. So probably whatever phone you have, it has an incredible camera. Uh, the only thing I know how to do is take a, like a hundreds of photos. And then, um, sometimes I get one I really like it and, but I take so many that it, it like I've annoyed people, um, <laughs> I've annoyed my hiking partners, different hiking partners have been like, I just, you know, stop asking me to stop so that you can take a picture, which is completely legit. That's totally legit. Um, and I respect that. I love it when people give me that feedback because I 100% don't want to know anyone, but that's the only way I know how to take good photos. So if, you know, any good photos I have, it's because I took like 500 photos of a single sunset. Maybe that's an exaggeration. 100 photos of a single sunset. 
Yeah, that makes sense, right? Like you're going to pick the best one out of like 60. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And um, I just got I just got my first DSLR, but it's not um I feel like I'm just learning how to use it. So, I don't think I have as many good photos. Okay. Um is there one or maybe a few uh Instagram accounts you want to recommend for people to follow um if they care about, I don't know, outdoorsy things or anyone that you love? You mentioned a couple of communities before. Yeah. Okay. There, I, uh, there are so many Instagram accounts right now that are by like people of color in the outdoors, um, or fat people, trans people, different communities in the outdoors who are sort of changing the narrative. And I feel like I can't even recommend just one, but there's this one melanin base camp and, uh, they just posted in their stories um, yesterday, like 40, uh, outdoors accounts, um, that were by people of color to follow. And I wish I could just like tell you all of those somehow, but, um, yeah, I feel like I don't like, there's not even like one specific one. Yeah, Melanin Basecamp, their founder, Danielle, was a guest a couple seasons ago. I feel like that's a good place to to find other recommendations because they do such yes. a great job of I feel like the same is true with Jenny's Unlikely Hikers that like they pro like accounts like communities like that that really like amplify other people who are doing great work and telling great stories in this space. It's a really easy way to find awesome folks to follow. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, unlikely hikers for sure. Um yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's a really good start. And then finding these other accounts and then watching the accounts that they post. I feel like that's how I found like a lot of different accounts. Yeah. Same. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite podcast to listen to when you're out hiking? I know sometimes you listen to podcasts on hikes. <laughs> I really like your podcast. Um, I feel like you're a really excellent interviewer and you ask really good questions. I, I feel like the only podcast I listen to like super regularly is democracy now mm-hmm. um, because I get really confused about where to find good news right now, because I feel like so many different news medias are influenced by so many different things. Like, uh, I don't know. It's just, it gets really confusing sometimes. And I feel like democracy now is the one source I can listen to where I always know like that. I'm just going to hear, um, I don't know what, like, like Amy Goodman doesn't pull any punches. She doesn't, the, the, she's the person who's generally hosting it or who hosts it the most. And, um, she's not trying to, you know, mix in feel good stories. She's not trying to talk about things that are clickbait. She's not trying to talk about things that will get people to subscribe. She's not trying to please any, you know, companies or big corporations or anything. She's not pulling any punches. She's just telling you exactly what's going on. And for that reason, sometimes it's really depressing and that can be really hard, but, um, I do try to keep up with it. And I feel like democracy now over the years has been like the best news source I found. Yeah. I, I started listening to that on your recommendation and totally agree with everything you just said. It's um, so rough though. <laughs> I mean, yes, it can definitely get, it's been, I feel like if you look at my podcast library, it's, it's like really rough, serious things. And then really light stuff. That's literally just for funsies. That's like the balance of the media that I consume basically. Yeah. Um, okay. So one more hiking related question for someone who's new or interested in, I don't know, like through hiking is there, 
either a piece of advice or an important skill you think that folks should learn? What's like a a starting point advice that you have? I feel like it's really, um, if you know what trail you want to hike, um, there are a lot, there's like Facebook pages for all the trails. So the person I'm dating right now, she's, she really wants to hike the Colorado trail. So there's a Facebook page, women of the Colorado trail. And so she's gone on that a lot. And there's people talking about all sorts of different things that, um, you know, it might be hard to find the answers to like, what do you do about this? What do you do about that? Like, what gear are you carrying? When are you starting all this different stuff? So I feel like those groups, they're like really problematic and imperfect, but it could be a good source, good place to just get some really basic questions answered. And then, um, I really like the book ultralight backpack and tips by Mike Cleland, because I feel like having a lighter pack makes long distance hiking accessible for more different kinds of bodies and more like just more people like different age range and bodies and all these different things. But I feel like that's also something that you don't learn in like the normal backpacking world or just like at REI, people Mm -hmm. aren't really talking about that. So I feel like those two things, like just lurking in some forums for the trail you want to hike and asking questions and, and people love to give advice. They love it so much. Totally. Totally. Um, so if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take. What would you love for folks to do besides donate to your fundraiser? Because that's my call to action for them. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Um, I feel like, uh, if you're white, just, you know, I'm white think about this a lot just try to take as many risks as you can to help support and center and whatever more marginalized communities knowing that you are going to get way less pushback Mm -hmm. than communities of color and just think about how important that is yeah that's 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 what I'm trying to think that's what I'm thinking about right now yeah no that that's great um what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online obviously I know that you will be out of reception when this first comes up but what's your favorite way to connect with new folks um instagram.com slash carrot quinn uh, my Instagram is probably the best. And then, uh, I blog, I'll be blogging every day on the trail, but those won't go up until mid July. Those posts will start going up, but I close the comment section on my blog because I feel like blog comment sections in my experience can be really awful. Unlike Instagram where I feel like I hardly ever get trolled. I feel like my blog would just draw all these weird people who would just like say weird shit. Um, so, so it's not the most interactive place, my blog, but Instagram, yeah, I spent a lot of time there. Awesome. And like I said, I'll put links to all of this in the show notes. Carrot, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music, which is awesome, by the way, and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Liz. Hi, Liz. Hello. You ready to answer some random rapid-fire questions? Yep, I think so. <laughs> like, I think, maybe. Um, my favorite question first, what are you totally obsessed with right now? Ha. Um, at the moment, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about self-worth and um, how that relates to goals 
and basically where you can find self-worth when you're working towards goals and stuff. And it's, it's driving me a bit mad, basically. <laughs> That's so interesting. I know I'm like trying to keep these rapid fire, but I, I have to ask follow-up questions. So what, what do you mean specifically when you say like finding self-worth while you're in the pursuit of goals? Like what is the link between those two for you? <laughs> um, well, I guess I've just, I've been reminded in the past week that success with writing is basically an exercise in constantly moving goalposts. And so, you know, you, you succeed at one thing and then it's not actually success. It just means you're going for the next thing. And I sort of realized that my self-worth is a bit too much tied up in success in writing. And yeah, I'm sort of trying to figure out how to untangle all that at the moment. That's so, yeah, I can, I mean, I think not only can I relate to that, but I think everyone can relate to that. This idea that how do you have that sort of contentment and confidence and self-worth and like sense Mm -hmm. of belief while also still pursuing hard things that like by the nature of them are hard, right? Yeah, totally. Um, We could have a much longer conversation about that. So I'm very interested to hear what happens for you. Um, The next question, what's something that's feeling frustrating for you right now? Like one particular thing or area of your life that you're finding challenging? Mm. Um, I feel like I keep going in circles, like with, with quite a lot of different parts of my life, actually. Like, you know, I'll make progress and then something will happen and I'll drop back to where I'm not quite where I was. I'll be above where I was, but, you know, it happens with running, it happens with writing, it happens in quite a lot of other areas as well. So, yeah, that's quite annoying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's something that a lot of people seem to care about that you just can't get into? Like something that other folks seem to prioritize, but you just don't really care? Um, pop culture, I guess. I, I'm just really clueless about like who all these people are in magazines and stuff these days. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's been a common answer to the question. So you definitely aren't alone. Um, what would you say is your secret weapon in one of your healthiest relationships? Ooh, um secret weapon um I guess I'm I'm quite empathetic I think so and I tend to I tend to notice what people when people aren't happy quite quickly mm-hmm. yeah what's the last question what's one specific thing that you wish that people were more open and honest about uh, <laughs> um yeah I wish people were just more on- honest about the fact that things are hard sometimes um, you know, because it, it's almost like it's it's not done to say, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm struggling a bit, actually. And, you know, instead, we sort of, we all have these veneers of everything's fine. And yet we're all kind of like, if you look at depression levels and stuff, we're all basically unhappy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I wish people talked more about that. Yeah, I agree. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season, for which I'm very grateful. And I would love for you to share two things. The first, why you decided to support the show. And the second, what you love most about being in our little community. Okay. Um, So I decided to support the show because... Basically, your podcast has helped me a lot at a couple of different times when I was in a really bad place mentally. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it kind of made sense for me to support the sh- to, 
to support something that had helped me and also that will hopefully help lots of other people as well. Yeah, I, uh, lo- I love hearing that. Thank you. Keep going. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> no, sorry. Just so the second part, like at first, I wasn't really that interested in the community side of things because I, w- I just wanted to give you some cash, basically. <laughs> um, but I really like the way the community is building. Um, I like the book club. Um and yeah, I like the fact that now I'm, you know, I recognize different names and things like that. And it really is a community, which is not really what I was expecting at the start. So, Yeah, I feel the same way. I think the fact that it's been building gradually and organically and in any community, there's always, you know, people that are more active than others. Or like you said, some people are just there to, you know, pay for the show or whatever. But those handful of people, especially, you know, being on the Google Hangouts, right, in that funding tier, it's been really fun. Like, I feel like we're actually getting to know each other. And that, I mean, <laughs> sounds silly to say that, but it's it's nice. Like, um, one of the other outros that I recorded, I think, for, for last season um, with a woman named Sarah, it's like we were laughing about how, you know, she did the outro. She's been in the community. She came to one of the live events, obviously, which I know is the same for you, too. And it's like, oh, wait, we're actually, like, friends now. <laughs> like, I could just get to talk to my friend Liz and my friend Sarah. And it's really nice. I don't know. So I'm grateful. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful to you. So. <laughs> and the last thing I wanted to ask, can you share where you live and maybe a social media link or something in case folks wanted to reach out? Um, I live in Manchester, which is in northern England. Um, I'm on the wrong side of England at the moment. I'm actually from the northeast and I'm in the northwest, but never mind. <laughs> um, uh, social media, I guess people can find me on Twitter at Liza Bell, which is L-I-Z-A underscore L-B-E-L-L-E. I love it. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I honestly can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Maybe we can even record a future outro together like this one. That would be so much fun. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 